Jesus, my heart this morning is for those among us who feel like they're stuck in miry clay, for those who feel like their world is falling apart. And so I pray that this morning that the good news of your love would reach out, that they would sense your presence, that they would know and experience your love for them for the hundredth time or the first time today. We just ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I think we have some kids still filtering out, so it might just take us a minute to kind of I'm going to get myself settled while that's happening. You know, not only does he love me enough to let me preach from his pulpit the first time, but to wear matching outfits. <laughs> Two Sundays in a row. So, although to be fair, he asked to be matching. So, you know, that's... Um, well, as you know, it's Palm Sunday, and this is one of my favorite weeks of the year, this and Easter Sunday, and so I was so excited when Kyle asked if I would be willing to preach this week. And this morning we're going to be in Philippians 3, if you want to turn there. Um, but as you're turning, Amanda's going to throw up a picture on the thing there, and this, this is me, um, Easter-like, man, I'm terrible at math, <laughs> 37 years ago. Um, now, so I'd like to point out, I'm just going to acknowledge this. I did tell my father I was doing this. We, we just, we can't not acknowledge my father's Hutterite phase. So in South Dakota, we don't have Amish, but we have Hutterites who are also Anabaptists, but they live in a colony. They eat their meals, like they have their own homes, but they eat meals together. Kyla's nodding because she knows. Um, and they, like, they can drive cars. The men can, so they drive around in suburbans. But um, anyway... My dad kind of rocked that look for a few years until someone said something and then the beard went away. But anyway, um, from my earliest memories, Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday were some of my favorite. I loved like putting on my Sunday best. As you can see, oh, it went away. Can you pull it back up for a second, Amanda? As you can see, um, like my new shoes, my new dress. Some years I got to wear a new hat, you know, like those were really fancy years. Um, and I think that there was kind of this idea that, like, this was a Sunday. I could tell even at a young age that this was a Sunday that was more important than all the rest. There was a sense of excitement about it that was more than all the rest. And I laugh here because you can tell I'm the youngest, right? Like, I am just, like, living my best Olin Mills posed life right here <laughs> while my brother and sister are like, this is awesome, right? Um, and so as I think about Palm Sundays and Easter Sundays, I have memories of getting up early for sunrise services, of foam curlers in my hair that hurt when I slept on them, of the excitement of visitors being in our church, not knowing maybe who would be there that week, of the building being full. Like there almost felt like there was an electric sense during worship on Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday because there was just that excitement that I, I loved to experience. And I think there's something so wonderful about celebrating Jesus' resurrection with my spiritual family. And I still think that. I'm so excited for next week because I'm excited to be in this room to sing and to worship the King of Kings who died so that we could know him and came back to life. So shortly after that picture was taken, I decided to follow Jesus in Sunday school. Now this wasn't a difficult decision for me. I was about five years old. And I had been hearing my mom read Bible stories to my brother since before I was even born. I remember at one point my teacher said something to my mom, I maybe should just let Stephanie teach because every time I try to tell the story, she finishes it for me. <laughs> and so 
when my teacher asked, and this is how I remember it and internalized it, this might not be exactly what she said, when she asked, did I want to follow Jesus and go to heaven when I died or not and be separated from God and everyone I loved, it was a pretty obvious choice, right? And so I said yes to Jesus. And without me realizing it, a seed was planted in my heart that this was an obvious and easy decision, a choice that I had made. And honestly, anyone who didn't make the same decision was foolish and illogical. Probably had other words for it, but it was the 80s, and we don't say those words anymore because they're not kind. <laughs> now, this mindset grew through the years, and I was honestly struck by how pervasive it was for me because as I was preparing this sermon, I began to look back on my childhood and my understanding of my faith and scripture. And I realized that whenever I would think of a biblical account from my childhood, I would always place myself as the person who believed in Jesus. So on Palm Sunday, I would see myself not just in the crowd celebrating Jesus, but as the person who like actually knew that he was really the divine king who had come to save humanity. And on Easter weekend, I would see myself not with the crowds chanting for Barabbas to be released, or with the disciples fleeing for their lives, or as a Pharisee certain of their own righteousness and rightness, but I would see myself steadfastly standing with Jesus' mother Mary, certain of who he was even when everyone else doubted. Now, some of this could certainly be chalked up to childlike faith, definitely. But there was also a root of self-righteousness and judgmentalism that was growing up from that original seed that said only a fool wouldn't choose Jesus. And that root led me to lack in grace, not only for others, but for myself. Fast forward to high school. I went to a Christian boarding school in rural South Dakota, and there were a couple of reasons for that. One was it provided a better education, Christian education, and the other were all the opportunities it provided for me to be in theater and choir and traveling ministry teams, handbells, which I lettered in. Thank you very much. I know you're jealous. Sports, yearbook, and newspaper, and sports only because we were a small school, let's be clear. Um, and those are things that my local high school didn't offer. Now, that might seem like a lot of activities for a small high school of 80-some students, but let me just ask you, do you want a bunch of teenagers who live together 24-7 to have a lot of time and energy on their hands? No, no you don't. They kept us very busy so that we did not have time to get busy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> As I entered high school, I found myself being affirmed a lot for being a natural leader. Those were the sports awards I would get at sports banquets, leader of the team, leadership award for making good choices, and for earning good grades. Eventually, I, I came to realize that those good things I had been doing had become my identity. It was what set me apart from my peers, and it, it's how I perceived that I could get love and affection from the adults around me. But I also realized that there was a dark side of this pressure to maintain my reputation, to keep up the good facade because I knew deep down that there was some rotten fruit in my heart. I felt stuck, and I didn't know how to get out of the cycles of obeying for the wrong reason and then feeding my pride when I was affirmed for my right decisions and my servant-heartedness. 
and then privately feeling awful for knowing that my motivations were primarily selfish. And ultimately, I was judging my peers and myself harshly. And I think this was such a hard thing to comprehend because when we look at scripture, it says to obey is better than sacrifice, right? Obedience is a good thing. God desires our obedience. But I knew that my motivation and my heart weren't right, and so I felt so stuck. Like, how can I obey God for the right reasons? Like, how do I obey him because I love him and not because of what it gets me, not because of the affirmation it gets me? This frustrating cycle led me to search the Bible trying to understand how I could be obedient not for the affirmation I got from others, but out of love for Jesus and how I could get off of the hamster wheel of performance and earning. So one day I was reading Philippians 3, and the Holy Spirit got my attention and started me on a journey of truly knowing Jesus. So if you haven't already, let's turn to Philippians 3, verse 1. And I kind of want to read, I'm going to read a little bit of the passage of Scripture and then just share kind of what I, how I processed this as I was first reading it. So verse 1, Paul the Apostle is writing to the Philippian church, and this is what he says. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. This is the first time I have a memory of seeing myself in a biblical passage that I wasn't identifying with just the good stuff. Here was another passage I could see myself in, but this time it wasn't because I was in the right I could sense that there might be good news in the, the idea of we rely on what Christ has done and put no confidence in human effort. But I also resonated deeply with Paul saying that he had even more reasons to be confident in his own efforts. This is how I kind of read the passage. So verse 5, Paul says, I was circumcised when I was 8 years old. For me, I was like, I was saved at age 5 in Sunday school. I've been saved my whole life. I can't remember anything different. Paul says, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I thought, I was raised in a Christian home and was taught the Bible from the time I was born. I grew up in church. Every time the doors were open, we were there, usually the last ones to leave as I was fainting for hunger on a Sunday morning. My parents were not compassionate. I won sword drills, like little Bible-looking-up-versus contests. And then I have to say, Heather did beat me at a staff retreat last year. I memorized all the Awana scriptures. I knew all the songs. I served in all the ministries. Paul says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I attended Christian school. I was a leader among my peers known for following the rules. I was also the person at boarding school. You had to get cars from place to place. I was always the person that parents wanted to drive their kids' cars. <laughs> I was like, that fresher girl, she's very responsible. <laughs> Verse 6. I was so zealous, Paul says, that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I thought, I was so certain. I'm so certain that I'm right 
that I judge my peers harshly and look down on people who don't live out their faith the ways that I think that they should. Verse 7, Paul says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. And I kind of came to a hard stop. I thought, what? There's a possibility that all these good things I've done are worthless? There's no value at all? And suddenly I'm beginning to suspect that maybe I'm not Paul in the story after all. Maybe I'm more like the Messianic Jews in verse 2 who are trying to require the Gentile Christians to be circumcised, to be real Christians. And I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, like, wow, that really puts my heart and my motivations into question. And I'm thinking, I'm hoping there's some better news to come in this passage for me. And there is. Verse 8. Paul says, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Or one commentator said like dog poop, gross and stinky. So that I could gain Christ and become one with him, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And this was the verse I think that really stuck out to me. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So I'm reading this as a teenager, and I'm thinking, hmm, this is getting more interesting and intense by the moment. And this thought occurs to me, maybe I didn't know Jesus as well as I thought that I did. Now, Kyle doesn't remember this, but I looked it up on the internet and found at least one article written by some guy named Patrick Lenton that affirms my memory of this. And he says, this is how he describes it. He says, there was a period of time around 2011 when the height of comedy was for two friends to announce that they were married on Facebook. See, you could do whatever you wanted with relationship statuses. And I remember logging on a couple times and being, I was working with college students at the time and being like, there is no way those two people are in a relationship. But like, you know, I've got to like find out like is Facebook real or not, right? Like what's happening? So you could say you were in a relationship with anyone. You could say you were married to anyone and the whole world would see that information. But it didn't actually mean anything if you didn't know the person or you weren't legally married. Just because you claimed it didn't mean there was any substance. And that's kind of how I felt like my relationship with Jesus was. I was very vocal about it. I was claiming it. I was naming it. But there was substance missing. There's, you know, there's a difference even between saying, like, I know a chair will hold me and sitting in the chair and experientially knowing that the chair is holding me. Right? And that's kind of how my faith with Jesus was. I knew him. I knew the good things about him. I knew who he was. But I wasn't experiencing those things for myself. I had known Jesus for most of my life. I knew countless scriptures and songs about him. I prayed to him and did everything I knew how to show my love for him. But I realized in that moment that I was more interested in doing things for him that then benefited me than I was in doing things with him. And there was little to no power or lasting fruit in my life. It was frustrating and discouraging. Around that time, I was studying this passage and trying to internalize it and be transformed by it, wanting more than anything to experience the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead, and even realizing that that might mean suffering with him, 
Which is a side note, I don't necessarily know if this was taught to me, but it's how I internalized it. In my mind, following Jesus is what you did so you wouldn't suffer. Right? Like, if I follow Jesus and I'm good, then my life will be happy and peaceful and calm. Isn't that just precious and unbiblical? <laughs> right? And so the Lord began to kind of even awaken in me this idea that, like, because, again, that's me trying to earn something, right? Like, I'm trying to behave in such a way that God will give me an easy life. It's not about being with him. It's not about knowing him. At the same time, we had guest speakers in chapel, and one of them said something. So I'm not giving this person credit because I, I don't know. <laughs> they were twins, and their names were Mick and Rick, and I don't know. <laughs> It was, my high school had something called SLU, Spiritual Life Emphasis Week, and Mick and Rick, and I honestly can't remember their last names now, came and spoke, and I don't know which one said it, so that's why I'm not quoting it, but, um, so either Mick or Rick said something so simple that I'll never forget it, because God used what he said to pierce through any remaining confusion, fog, or misunderstanding, and, and I vividly remember sitting in this pew in our chapel, the thing I know is not accurate is I remember feeling like I was the only one sitting in that room, and I know that that wasn't true. And this is what he said. So simple. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Now, I knew that I couldn't earn God's love. I would learned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as like a, I don't know, kindergartner, and it clearly says that we're saved by grace alone. It's nothing that we do. We can't earn it. But without realizing it, I had been living out this lie that I needed to maintain my own righteousness so that God wouldn't stop loving me, or at least not love me less. I felt like I was living my life treading water, trying to keep my head above the waters of judgment so that I could experience like the fresh air of the love of God. But I was so tired of working hard just to slip below the water, to have to fight to come back up, sputtering and gasping for another small breath of God's love. I begin to realize what amazingly good news Philippians 3 contains, that God's love is a strings, no-strings-attached gift. It's not at all dependent on my good works, my reputation, or my talents. It really has nothing to do with me. Commentator Frank Thielman says about this passage that he would sum it up saying this Righteousness before God on the final day comes solely from God. And any attempt to add requirements of human invention to what God has freely given amounts to a rejection of the gospel. Yeah, I read that this week. I was like, well, that's a punch in the gut. Glad I didn't know that when I was 16. <laughs> Without realizing it or meaning to, I'd been living out a rejection of the gospel. But the good news began to reverberate throughout my life as I discovered my first love and knew maybe, like truly for the first time, that Jesus loves me. Period. The next few years were a journey of learning more of who Jesus is and growing in prayer and kingdom calling. There were definitely challenging moments as I struggled with singleness, watching as many friends got married and started families. Then there were moments of struggling to find my calling, but it was also a time of tremendous growth in my walk with the Lord, even in the midst of those challenging seasons. I went to Bible college after high school and learned and grew in my understanding of scripture, theology, myself, ministry, and eventually ended up back at Moody where we went to Bible college working in residence life, mentoring and discipling students, a job I loved and felt so fulfilled in. So let's fast forward to 2010. 
after a particularly challenging year in which I was turning 30, so that was part of it, single, um, but also one where I experienced intimacy with Jesus like I never had known before, I started dating Kyle. A year and a half later, we got married, I changed jobs twice, we moved twice, ending up in Ohio, and looking back as I've been writing this sermon, that's when I lost my first love. Now, just to be clear, it's not Ohio's fault, even though we like to find things on Ohio, and it's not Kyle's fault, okay? Before marriage, I had invested so much time and energy into cultivating my relationship with Jesus. I prayed in the mornings before I got out of bed, sharing my concerns for the day, praying for my students. At night before bed, I would process my day and, and pray about the hard things and the good things and thank Jesus for his provision, his protection. And in my job that I love and felt fulfilled in, it felt like Jesus and I were doing something really important together. He was letting me participate in the discipling and mentoring of future ministry leaders. And it required wisdom and discernment and dependence on him. Then we got married, and it kind of felt like my life got turned spiritually upside down. I was much more eager to tell Kyle about my day than I was to talk to Jesus about it. And I found that once I had said it the first time, I didn't really feel like I needed to repeat it again for Jesus to hear it. The space that the singleness had provided for Jesus in my life, um, as I worked at Moody, I lived alone in my apartment. I was the only single one on my team. All my teammates were married. And, um, and so there was just a lot of space in my life for me to just sit in solitude, to just sit in the presence of the Lord. And I found that in marriage, I allowed Kyle to fill up that space. And although the Lord provided a wonderful ministry job for me here, I wasn't using the same gifting, and it just didn't feel like I was partnering with Jesus in the same way either. We started planting a church. We experienced infertility and three miscarriages. My mom went through cancer and treatments, and I found myself feeling voiceless and clinging to Jesus really only because, as the disciples had said, to whom else would I go? And friends, I just want to say that that is the gift of investing in spiritual community. I can think of two times in my life at 25 and around like 35 to 40 um, where I was at such a deep, dark spot that I, I wanted to walk away. I wanted to say this isn't working, this is too hard. And I couldn't because my whole life was built on the idea that Jesus is Lord and all my relationships, my most important ones were built on that. And there is such a gift in those seasons when you feel like, I can't do this anymore, to being surrounded with people who say, even if you can't, we will come with you and we'll do it together. And to realize that the cost of leaving all that is greater than you can count. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've not invested in, in, in friends who love the Lord, if you've not invested in our spiritual family, that it is a gift that God uses to shore you up in seasons of pain and difficulty. So, as the, as the disciples said, I thought, to whom else should I go? I had lost my first love. The intimacy was gone. The excitement had faded. It was often duty more than delight. And even though I sought the Lord and I, I wanted to hear from him, I wanted to hear him speak to me, I, I didn't. And honestly, when I did, I, I, I couldn't be sure. I thought he didn't have anything more to say to me. I just couldn't trust that it was him. I was grieving, I was tired, and honestly, I was a little bit shattered. And this went on for four or five years until around 2017. 
So let's fast forward. I said, made the joke last time, this is like a This Is Us episode. So let's fast forward really quick to January of this year, January 2022. We were, Kyle and I were in LA at a discipleship conference. And one of the worship songs was Jesus, Lover of My Soul, that we just sang. A song I hadn't heard in years. And one that immediately took me back to my senior year of high school and my senior chapel. So at our Christian school, every senior did a chapel and you got to pick the worship songs and give the message. And so two of the songs I chose were Jesus, Lover of My Soul, and Knowing You, Jesus, who were on our first love playlist and we're singing today. And I bet you can guess the passage that I used. It was Philippians 3. In a way that was absolutely not a coincidence at this conference, it could only be the Lord, the same day we sang that song, we started talking about what it would look like to return to our first love, corporately and personally, starting with ourselves. And so this writing this sermon has been the perfect opportunity for me to reflect not only on my first love and how that came about, but how Jesus had restored my first love over the past five years without me even realizing it. The theme verse of this series, Revelation 2.5, says, Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. As I begin to reflect on what had happened when I found my first love the first time and what works I did then, I begin to realize that there was a parallel in the last five years as I've un unknowingly been on a journey to rediscover that first love. Those works or deeds of returning to my first love for me fell into three categories. Discipleship, inner healing, and kingdom calling. In the years after I graduated from high school, I was intentional about seeking out older, wiser believers to disciple and mentor me as I discovered this incredible love that Jesus had for me. One of those mentors was a biblical counselor who helped me find healing from some of the relational brokenness I had experienced that had led me to being in unhealthy friendships that were codependent or enmeshed. Finally, I had a job where I was blessed to be able to get paid to live out my kingdom calling of mentoring and discipling emerging ministry leaders. Since 2017, I've been on a similar journey. We joined 3DM, an international discipleship movement that we're a part of, and we joined it that year, 2017. And we found ourselves, much to our surprise, being intentionally discipled as we were preparing to disciple others. And I think what was so powerful about that experience was that I was pretty broken when we started it. I, we, we started um, a leadership huddle, and we, the, like two weeks later, we had our third miscarriage. And as you know, one of the questions we ask around here a lot is, how is God getting your attention? And I just remember thinking, I was one of the only women on the call, and I remember thinking, like, he has my attention, and I don't really want to talk about it right now. Like, y you have it. Like, do what you want to do, but I'm not really, like, up for discussing that in a Zoom room full of strange men. <laughs> but thankfully, our, um, our huddle leader, Chael, who's discipled us, was so gentle and so kind and so compassionate. And thankfully, the Lord kept us in that. And, and so I, I was on this journey of learning to hear God's voice again, or honestly, maybe for the first time. I learned how important it was to disciple others, not based on my own intuition, but with vocabulary and shapes that can be reproduced by anyone. I learned all over again that when we hear God's word and are convicted and are obedient, our lives can be transformed no matter how long we've been following Jesus. 
So my question for you this morning is, have you lost your first love or maybe not even found it yet? If so, who is discipling you in this season? Who are you discipling? I also realized that I needed to begin a journey of healing as I continued to process and feel stuck in the grief and pain I had experienced from our miscarriages and from hurts and unforgiveness that had grown up in my heart over the years. I did inner healing sessions with our friend Anna and processed my grief and unforgiveness and found healing, hope, and freedom that I hadn't felt for years. I was even struggling with intense, irrational anxiety in the night, and I was fairly certain it was spiritual warfare, so I asked trusted people to pray for me and found that it decreased dramatically in the amount of times that it happened. I'm continuing to pursue inner healing with a ministry called Wellspring, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to pursue wholeness, and I'd encourage you, whether it's meeting with a reputable spiritual director, finding a Christian therapist, pursuing inner healing, or all of the above, don't stay stuck in the wounds of your past. If you want to know more about this, stay tuned for our new series starting after Easter called The Healer. But in the meantime, start to pursue healing now. Knock on all the doors. You are too loved and you have too much purpose to stay stuck in past pain. It's hard, but it's worth it. If you've lost your first love, do you have wounds that are keeping you from experiencing the deep love of the Father today? Finally, I've had to learn all over again how to live into my kingdom calling. In this season, that has meant pressing into preaching, which was initially terrifying for me and so hard. I felt so inadequate the first few times. Still do. That's okay. It's meant not shrinking back from the things that I felt God has called and equipped me to do, including leading, mentoring, and empowering our small group leaders and coaching people when they feel called to start something new. One of my greatest joys is helping people live into what God is calling them to do. Again, the season has had challenges. One of my callings is also to be a wife and mother, and that means being available emotionally and mentally to Kyle and Jack. It also means that we rely heavily on our spiritual family to love and care for Jack when both Kyle and I have responsibilities at church. And this week, it quite honestly meant relying on the Holy Spirit to write a sermon while sleep-deprived because I'm caring for a toddler with a double ear infection who couldn't sleep. He's better today. Antibiotics are a wonderful thing. <laughs> He's like, today was the day he slept until 7.30. All right, Jesus. <laughs> Friends, my encouragement is for you to take the risk. Do the hard thing if you sense God is calling you into it. Press into your calling. Don't let the enemy scare you off or make you back down. He's a liar, and he's the father of lies. Don't believe him when he says that you're not good enough or talented enough. The truth is, apart from Jesus, none of us are. But when we live into whatever it is that Jesus is calling us into, the joy and kingdom transformation are so worth it. Do you feel lukewarm toward Jesus today? Maybe it's because you're bored and not going on the adventure he's inviting you to join him on. What is the kingdom calling the Father has placed in your life? And if the answer is none, I would invite you to ask again and listen some more. Are you living into that kingdom calling? And if you aren't, why not? I want to close today with Philippians 3, 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, 
I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Friends, this Palm Sunday, let's celebrate Jesus. He longs to be our first love. He came so that we could forget the past, so that we could look forward to what's ahead, so that we could finish the race well, and so that we could receive the best prize we could ever ask for, knowing him and being known by him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice, for your gift of love for us. I thank you that because of that, we can know you and be known and loved by you. In your name, amen.